This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton coming with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A federal judge ruled today Michael Gableman must stop deleting records during his investigation of the 2020 presidential election. The ruling came after Gableman's attorney told the liberal watchdog group American Oversight that he routinely deletes documents and text messages that are not useful to the investigation. Since Gableman is a contracting employee of the state, he believed he didn't have to follow the state's record retention law. A Dane County judge disagreed. The ruling is another legal loss for the Gableman investigation, which has already cost Wisconsin taxpayers nearly $700,000. The City of Madison Parks Division will be holding an Earth Day challenge this Saturday. The city is asking for 850 volunteers to join them throughout all the Madison parks to help pick up trash, rake leaves, and remove weeds and sticks. The event will run from 10 a.m. to noon on Saturday, and registration is required before the event. The deadline to register is 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, which you can do on the City of Madison's website. Students from across Dane County are holding a workshop this weekend to help improve the climate of their respective schools for survivors of sexual assault and harassment. The Capital Times reports that the Rape Crisis Center's Game Changers are a group of local high school students and are holding the workshop for school staff and administrators. They say the workshop will focus on youth perspectives on how adults in the schools can better support students. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,310 new confirmed cases of the virus in Wisconsin yesterday, as the state continues to see a spike in positive cases. The seven-day average for COVID cases across the state is currently 832 new cases every day over the past week. There were also three new deaths from the virus across Wisconsin yesterday. And despite a rise in cases, Dane County continues to con- be considered to have a low community level of the virus, according to CDC metrics. And speaking of Dane County, there were 304 confirmed cases of the virus in the county yesterday, an almost 28% increase over the past two weeks. 31 people remain hospitalized from the virus in Dane County, and the county reported no new deaths yesterday. And now on to today's top stories. After Mount Pleasant resident Kelly Gallagher went to local press and social media about the lack of transparency in village government, the small town fired back by filing a defamation lawsuit against the private citizen. Gallagher is being represented in the civil suit by nonprofit litigation group, the Institute for Justice. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Robert McNamara, senior senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, about the case. So, Robert, to start things off, who are you guys? Who is the Institute for Justice? The Institute for Justice is the national law firm for liberty. We defend individual rights in state and federal courts all across the country, protecting the individual right to economic liberty, private property, educational choice, and free speech. And the free speech issue is what brings us here to Racine, Wisconsin. And then getting into that a little bit, let's get a little bit of background. What was happening with Kelly Gallagher before she was issued this lawsuit? So Kelly's trouble started when the local village board voted to expand their own term limits from two years to three years. And 
this struck Kelly as a, a big change that had been dropped on the public by surprise, and she didn't like it. So she started circulating a petition that would create a ballot issue to rescind the change in term length. This got a little coverage in the local media, and the village attorney, Chris Smith, told a local newspaper, essentially, this isn't a surprise. This has been discussed for years uh, before it was proposed to the board. And that struck Kelly as wrong. Kelly goes to all the board meetings. She pays attention. And she was pretty sure it hadn't been publicly discussed. Uh, and so she sent a FOIA request to Smith saying, tell me all the times this was publicly discussed. And he confessed it hadn't been prior to 2021. And so Kelly sent the FOIA request to reporters and, and said, hey, Chris Smith is lying to you. This wasn't publicly discussed prior to 2021. And here's his email proving it. Stop believing what he says. And instead of responding to her argument, instead of trying to argue about why what he said was true, Chris Smith sued her, trying to silence her and frighten anyone else who might want to criticize his job performance out of talking about uh, local politics. And now let's get into this lawsuit here. What did the village of Mount Pleasant, what issue did they take with Kelly? So as far as I can tell, uh, the village attorney's objection is that Kelly claimed he was not telling the truth when he said this had been discussed since 2018 because there had been no public discussions. As near as I can tell, he says that's not true because when he told the newspaper that there had been discussions since 2018, he didn't mean public discussions. He meant secret discussions. And maybe, I mean, set aside why it's a sensible thing to say to a reporter that the village government has been secretly plotting this for years, but maybe that's what he meant. Uh, but even if that's what he meant, that's just a dispute about how you interpret a statement. It's an argument about opinions and fights about what somebody said in the newspapers belong in the newspapers. They don't belong in the courthouse. Sort of getting into that a little bit, it seems like they took issue with the newspaper posting and then the social media posting as well. So from a legal perspective, can you be sued for posting too much from your perspective? Are city officials able to file this sort of suit against a private citizen for this reason? So the village attorney's lawsuit specifically says he should be entitled to damages because Kelly has created hundreds of social media posts about city policy and that those posts make city officials look bad and posting things on social media about government policy that make government officials look bad is the heart of the first amendment uh if local officials are in charge of who gets to criticize them on social media no one will get to criticize them on social media and that's exactly why the first amendment doesn't give them that power in the first place and robert do you have just any final thoughts on any of this that you'd like to share with me here today this isn't a case just about Kelly Gallagher. This is a case about the fundamental right to talk about politics without being subject to retaliation. And it's an issue that we've been fighting all across the country. Local officials in small towns from Texas to Colorado to here in Wisconsin seem to think that they are above criticism and that they can use their power to silence their political opponents. But under the First Amendment, they aren't above criticism and they can't silence their opponents. And that's the lesson that the Institute for Justice is here to teach the village attorney. I've been talking with Robert McNamara, senior attorney for the Institute for Justice, a nonprofit litigation firm representing Kelly Gallagher of Mount Pleasant after she was sued for defamation by the village. Bob, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Thanks for having me.
finding parking in Madison can be difficult, especially at a school with no parking lot. Parking for students and staff of Madison West High School has been a pressing issue at the school for many years. Student reporter Willow Ike has more. Neighboring West High School is Speedway Road, an extremely busy street with only 0.1 miles of legal parking. That's the only legal parking near the school. Two-hour and residential parking signs pop up on every other street within a mile radius of West and paired with vigilant parking patrol and hundreds of kids and teachers who need parking, it's a nightmare. My name is Willow Ike and I'm a student at Madison West High School. This nightmare becomes a reality for me every morning. There's one 70-spot teacher parking lot located on Van Heys Avenue, but with hundreds of staff members, it doesn't suffice. I asked a few West students about their parking experience at the school and got a variety of responses. The first question I asked was if they parked at West, and if so, where? Um, I have to park a few blocks away at two-hour parking signs. And I have to end up walking really far to get to the school? No, I live a block away from West on Rowley Avenue. I do, but my grandma lives a block away from West, so I'm able to park in her um, driveway. <laughs> I then asked if they found that parking difficult, and as for people who park with family, I asked what they would do if they didn't have a predetermined parking spot. And I have to leave my classes to go move my car so I don't get ticketed. Yeah, it's really hard, especially because um, of all the two-hour parking, and it's always super crowded. Um, I have to, like, sometimes even leave class to move my car or just move it at lunch. I get ticketed a lot because it's just hard to just leave. And I see every day a lot of people struggling to park, circling, like after class has already started, trying to find a spot. Um, every day I see parking enforcement, like just circling the streets, trying to find um, students to ticket, I guess. And on my walk home, I see a lot of tickets on cars. Um, I think I'd have a really hard time and probably make me late to class a lot because I would have to like constantly circle to find parking or park like really far away. I've seen residents of neighborhoods around the school angered by the noise and accidents. On multiple occasions, I've seen a student hitting a parked car and driving away. A recent assessment of West conducted by a contractor for the Madison Metropolitan School District acknowledges some of this reality. It acknowledges that there's inadequate parking availability for staff, no student parking, and that the asphalt paving is cracking throughout. That report also proposes solutions. It says that parking can be addressed in two ways. Either a small area could be created underneath a new pool, or a new structure west of Highland could be created. For WORT News, I'm Willow Ike. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. T-shirts, sleeping bags, backpacks, anything made out of fabric can eventually wear down and tear. 
If you don't know how to sew, you may be out of luck. But a group of expert mentors gather weekly at a local library to mend whatever needs mending free of charge. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. Every Thursday in a room on the first floor of Madison's downtown Central Library, a group of avid sewing experts gather to help mend and repair clothing, handbags, and even dog collars. It's known as the Mending Project, an arm of the nonprofit organization called the Sewing Machine Project. The Mending Project first began in 2015 as a one-off event hosted at the Madison Public Library Central location. The event was a hit and the library quickly reached out asking them to become a regular fixture of the library. Local artist and member of the nonprofit group called the Sewing Machine Project, Bird Ross, approached the group asking to make it a permanent event. The Mending Project has been running ever since, eventually being able to expand to locations across Madison, though they currently only operate out of the Central Library due to COVID. The Mending Project is open from 10 a.m., to noon every Thursday and can usually take on around five to seven people per day, depending on what the volunteers can handle. Ross, who has been running the project, says the mending is free and open for everyone. And so we served a lot of the homeless population, I think, in the in the first few years. And it's opened up so that everybody knows about it now. And so and anyone is, you know, we don't, we want anybody and everybody to come. The sewers can fix almost anything made of fabric. Well, except zippers. Those require tools that are too specialized. But over the past seven years, the Mending Project has fixed shirts and pants, pet leashes and harnesses, sleeping bags, and backpacks. Lots of backpacks. I think it's really interesting when people bring in their backpacks. Because backpacks, especially for people that don't have necessarily a place to keep their things, they're really important. And their coats, really important because of all the pockets and the way that they, they carry their things you know, with them and on them. And so I have to say that, you know, sometimes when backpacks, you know, we've even offered that we've said, this backpack is really on its last leg. Can we offer you another one? You know, for example, we might have one on hand. And I'll say, well, no, really, I want, I want to use this one. Ross says that one of her favorite things about the Mending Project is being entrusted with items that have underlying sentimental value. She says that people will bring in old coats that belong to their mother or the leash of their beloved dog, and that when they learn more about the item being mended, it shapes how they intend to fix them. Sometimes people have a really loved item of clothing that is literally on its last thread. And people will say, can you mend it? And we say, either we say we can try or we say it's it's beyond what we can do to make it last longer. And those those um, conversations are, are are delicate and really interesting and really um, I don't know. I feel like we learn a lot from being able to have the conversations with people over these personal items that they're bringing to us and they're entrusting us to give it more life. Sometimes people bring in items that simply stump the menders. How does one go about fixing a beloved object that is almost beyond repair? Ross says that she loves to try and solve seemingly impossible problems. Well, absolutely, all the time. And I think that's one of the joys of doing it with a partner 
is because we have, it's like, what would you do? What would you do? Oh, you know, and the light bulbs go off. And sometimes the light bulbs get combined, and that really works really great. But I think the whole idea, I think that's one of the reasons why I sew, is I love the problem-solving aspect of it. And I, I would say, I think it's really safe to say that that's why a lot of people come, because they want to try to fix something that they didn't know, you know, before what the situation was. And so problem solving is a a lot of what we do. The Mending Project is part of a larger effort here in Madison to spread the love of sewing across the world. It's called the Sewing Machine Project, and it began in 2005 after a tsunami tore through several countries in Southeast Asia. After reading about a woman who had lost her sewing machine and the resulting floods, Margaret Jankowski founded the Sewing Machine Project, collecting sewing machines throughout Dane County to send to people affected by the tsunami. After more disasters, both natural and man-made, occurred throughout the world, the Sewing Machine Project began to take its form, providing free sewing machines to people in need. While they no longer try to attend the needs of people worldwide, Jankowski says the project is still very active, both here in Madison and across the country. At this point, we work mainly locally and nationally. So here in town, we work in collaboration with community centers, and we offer sewing classes to to the clients of those centers, and then we have the mending sites. And then nationally, we have an application process for machines, and we ship machines all over the country to to groups that are serving people at it, just in various situations where machines could be super helpful. The sewing machines used in all of their programs are donated by people across the country and are more often than not donated to people in need through either their nationwide program or through their local classes. The classes run for about six weeks where members of local community centers are invited to learn how to sew. They spend the course creating something that can be used at the community center, such as a blanket. Then, at the end of the course, participants are able to take the sewing machine home with them that they now know how to use. These classes are not open to the public and started out for Bhutanese immigrants who have settled here in Madison. Jankowski says that the class saw great success and they are looking to start another class in Madison that will focus more on repurposing old clothing. Because all of the sewing machines are donated to the project and then given to people in need, Jankowski says that they have to be a little picky when it comes to what machines they will actually take. If they aren't in perfect working condition, they say that they cannot use it because they don't want to give someone a machine that only lasts for a short while. Regardless, Jankowski says things do happen, and the project is working on solutions for new sewers to help guide them in fixing small issues with their machine. Another thing that we're really working on is we've recognized that with our local centers, sometimes people do receive these class, these machines after six weeks, and then they take it home and they sew on it, and they and something happens with the machine. Either it's you know it might just be misthreaded, or or something might be a little wonky on it, and it's not sewing right. We want to be a little bit more responsive to that, and so we're developing a series of videos that are um, we're, we're developing one library of project videos, and then another library of kind of simple maintenance videos, and we want to offer that as a resource to our local clients, to our national clients, and then to anybody who needs it. I'm an outdoorsman, which means inevitably some items of clothing are going to be torn on a loose branch or thorn bush. I brought an old t-shirt with me to the Central Library in March to see if the menders could give my shirt a second chance at life. I have a t-shirt here 
Okay. It's got a bit of a hole in it right in the sleeve. All right. Let's see. Here, if you want to take a look, is that something that you think could be fixed? Well, let's see. Ooh, it needs surgery on this. It does. The prognosis was worse than I thought, but I got to see the process of deciding how to fix something firsthand. Well, I'll tell you what. What we should do is take it over to one of the volunteers and see if they would be willing to tackle this. I think some of this, how do you want it to look, Nate? Do you have, is this your dressiest t-shirt that you want to make sure it looks exactly the way it did when you purchased it? No, this is just a, this is just a shirt that I had. It was sitting around. I've, I've had it for a few years. I was thinking about just tearing the sleeves off entirely, but wanted to see if, uh, being able to get the sleeves back on would is still something possible. It's not my best shirt yeah. by any means, but yeah. it, it is a shirt. <laughs> well, I think it's definitely tack. One can um, tackle this and see where it goes, and um, show you how it looks, and you can decide. How about that? I think that sounds. I think that sounds great. We brought the shirt over to the expert team of menders, and after much deliberation, they decided the shirt could in fact be saved. They went over a few options with me, from trying to find a piece of fabric that could patch a hole, or if it could simply be sewn shut. The team landed on sewing the hole with a zigzag pattern to reinforce the fabric. Though the shirt was a touch tighter in the sleeves, an outcome that was run by me beforehand, the shirt was able to pull through and was given a second wind. The menders told me sewing is a relaxing use of their time. As I watched them mend my shirt, the volunteers worked together to fix my shirt, troubleshoot any equipment issues, and escape from the world, even just for a short while. Jankowski says that this is what draws her to sewing. The news of the world feels pretty overwhelming, and it's a little hard to know how you can make some sort of a difference. And this is a way to make a difference right in your own community. So, um... I feel like that's important and I think it's something that people need right now. Ross says that the sewing machine project, and by extension the mending project, is open to everyone. Also, for them to realize that we would love to have anybody that's curious about this initiative to come to the library and check us out and see what we're doing. And then if anyone would like to volunteer to mend, we would love to have you. And that, again, you can go on the website and it's a, you know fill out the volunteer form and say you want to mend. And then we can send you all the info. And we certainly invite anybody to come and have a look to see what the mending is all about so that they might join us. We'd love to have more folks join us. It'd be great. Starting next month, the mending project is expanding to Hawthorne Library on East Washington Avenue. The mending will take place the second and fourth Wednesday of every month from noon until 2 p.m. As of right now, the Hawthorne expansion is on a three-month trial period, though Ross says that if the interest is there, they will certainly stay longer. You can find more information on the Sewing Machine Project on their website at thesewingmachineproject.org. Fixing, mending, repairing workshop where we repaired everything but broken hearts. People ask about that, and we couldn't help them with that, but we did a lot of <laughs> mending of other things. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. But first, we'll get the latest in world headlines, and we'll be right back.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Next month, the Wisconsin GOP will hold their annual convention at the Madison Marriott West over in Middleton. Yeah, you heard that correctly. The state's top gathering of GOP officials will take place deep in the heart of heavily Democratic Dane County. For this week's Isthmus on Wart, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Isthmus senior reporter Dylan Brogan about the convention and the broader state of Wisconsin's political landscape. So, Dylan, right out of the gate, what is the Wisconsin GOP convention? What sort of things do they talk about at the convention? Sure. Well, you know, it's a little bit like the big national conventions that you see every four years with the presidential candidates, but uh, definitely smaller affair. It's for the state party and all these county parties um, of the Republican Party and the Democrats have one, too. Uh, They meet and usually they talk about a platform. Usually they hear from candidates. Sometimes they uh, do, you know, uh, figure out endorsements. Um, But generally it's a. you know, a big gathering of Republican uh, leaders and from all over the state is a good way to think about it. And like I said, the Democrats do something similarly. And the GOP convention, that's being held right here in Middleton, right in the heart of Dane County. Why did they decide to hold it there as opposed to somewhere known to be more conservative leaning? Yeah, it uh, is somewhat surprising. Um, I mean, all I can tell you is that, you know, the spokesperson for the Republican Party of Wisconsin said, uh, you know, they're not afraid to visit the heart of the beast, is how she phrased it. Um, She also mentioned um, that, you know, there are a lot of Republican voters in Dane County just due to its size, even though Democrats win with a huge percentage of the vote, which is increasing. there's, you know, it's still the third, the third largest pool of Republican voters, if you look at it by county in the whole state. So even though they, just because of its sheer size, uh, second biggest county in the state, a lot of, you know, even if it's 30 percent Republicans, that's still a lot of votes. And in statewide races that, you know, that can make a big difference for either side. And then one thing that really interested me about your article is it wasn't just the your article wasn't just about the GOP convention, but sort of about how Dane County fits as a whole uh, in the landscape of Wisconsin politics. And we all sort of think about Dane County as being the most Democratic leaning county in the state. But you sort of found that that wasn't necessarily the case, correct? Correct. uh, But it it pretty much is in terms of just, uh, you know, what percentage of the vote for. And I was looking at, you know, statewide races um, for president and for governor and for U.S. Senate over the last mostly looking at the last 12 years or so. Um, But Menominee County, which is the smallest county in terms of population in the whole state, it's the whole county is basically the tribal lands of the Menominee Nation. there's only about 1,600 voters there, but uh, they are uh, very uh, – a high percentage of those voters are Democratic voters and have been for a long time. I believe it was 1994. Almost positive. It might have been 1996, but almost positive it was 1994. Uh, you know, Tommy Thompson, former governor, uh, Republican governor, who just recently stepped down as the UW system head and, and actually said he wasn't going to run for governor. But uh, in 1994, 
He uh, won every county, including Dane County, um, except for Menominee County. And I know he likes to bring that up because he wanted all 72 counties and he only got 71 because of the Menominee people. But in general, uh, Dane County has definitely been trending more Democratic. Now, if you just look at uh, state races like starting about 2010, and I think that is kind of an important year when Governor Walker was elected, it was about 30 percent um, uh, of the vote in Dane County for governor went to Republicans. Uh, that went down to about 29 when uh, and uh, further down to 24 percent when Governor uh, Walker lost to Evers in 2018. And the, the numbers are even more in the Democratic favors when you're looking at presidential contests. So um, Dane County is the is inching to the is it, is it to the being more of a Democratic stronghold every year. And, uh, and that's somewhat true of other of Republican counties. Like we like to think a big, the number one county in just uh, in terms of producing Republican votes in most state elections, statewide elections, is Waukesha County. And there, the share of the Republican, the percentage of the vote going to Republicans has actually gone down a little bit. Now, there's other counties like Taylor County, which used to be more evenly split, not quite, but is, is skewing more right in, uh, in favoring Republicans. But um, in general, uh, it is kind of remarkable that Dane County continues to become even more of a Democratic stronghold. And, and that's really important for statewide elections when it's so 50-50 in terms of um, the presidential races, in terms of the governor's races, you know, 51, 52 percent. That's a it's a pretty big percentage now of a, of a win um, for whatever candidate uh, wins in a statewide election. So when in Dane County really came out in 2020, I mean, they produced, I think it was 40,000 more votes than they did four years earlier. And, you know, and Joe Biden won with about 20,000, which is around the same share that Donald Trump did in 2016. So when you're cranking out 40,000 more Democratic votes in a very, very tight state, a purple state like Wisconsin, that's one of the factors that can really swing an election. And I think the Republicans holding their convention in Middleton is uh, a sign that, you know, they whatever Republican uh, votes, voters they have in Dane County, they need every single one of them to sort of uh, hold back that onslaught of Democratic votes that usually pour out of Dane County. And with the convention happening here in Dane County, obviously you spoke with the chair of the Republican Party of Dane County. And he sort of talked yeah. about sort of the organizing efforts that they have had here in Dane County. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Now, you know, they're not doing very well in terms of local elections, uh, even in the Dane County supervisor races, uh, which are nonpartisan, but, you know, can certainly have Republicans um, an influence in terms of the party apparatus. They're focused, They're not really focused on uh, uh local races but they do seem to have a, an active a group of republicans in dane county they're an active county party just statewide and they're they're holding events once a month they're organizing in other ways and uh the their chair of this county the dane county republicans um you know definitely seems to um where it's quick to highlight just how important that you know maybe dane county is not going to Maybe Dane County is never going to be a Republican county again, but that doesn't mean that they can't do a lot of organizing and helping candidates, whether that's statewide candidates or, or other candidates that maybe live in more um, politically um, politically split regions. 
And then, of course, we can't talk about political conventions without talking about the two potential national conventions that are both looking at Wisconsin, specifically Milwaukee. Both the Democratic and Republican parties have been looking there to hold their conventions in 2024. Yeah. Uh, what are sort of both sides of the aisle doing here in Wisconsin to sort of win themselves over? Yeah, it's definitely Wisconsin is once again going to be one of one of the states that is very important for whatever for, for winning the electoral college and so that seems to that an indication of that is just that the republicans for their 2024 national convention have are either going to be in what was it nashville or milwaukee which is which is interesting and for a big party like that you know milwaukee is obviously a democratic area but when you're picking a whole state it obviously the the national republicans are picking it because wisconsin's a battleground state um but remember in 2020 um the democrats also uh chose to have their convention in milwaukee but that was not a good year in terms of uh having the full convention and beyond, you know, have Milwaukee sort of given this big spotlight in terms of all the national media attention because it was all virtual, right? So virtual, there wasn't really any, uh, you know, the huge crowds or, or uh, the influx of people that you usually see with these political conventions. So, you know, that neither party has decided yet, um, but both the Democrats and the Republicans might be in Milwaukee that, uh, in the, you know, the summer of 2024, um, for their, their party's conventions, which will, you know, that's great for local reporters like us. So that that, that is definitely true. Uh, I've been joined by Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for Isthmus, on his article on the Wisconsin GOP convention coming to Middleton next month. You can read his full article online at isthmus.com. Dylan, thank you for talking to me again this week. Sure, anytime. Thank you. This week on our Beer and Brewing feature, Fermenting Wart, host Colin Morgan traveled to Door County to talk to Matt Sampson of Door County Brewing Company. The brewery's Belgian brews take center stage for this beer banter. This is Fermenting Wart. I'm Colin, your host. Today I'm in Bailey's Harbor at Door County Brewing Company with Matt Sampson. We're talking about spring-style beers today and uh, what they've got going on at Door County Brewing and Hacienda Brewing, their sister brewery. I got introduced to Door County Brewing Company. I went to school at UWGB, and I didn't like beer. And I had Door County Brewing Company. That was the first craft beer that I had. And what was it? I think I had Big Sister. And I was like... Oh, this is really good. Awesome. This is like super, super good. And so that's kind of what got me into brewing. Do you know much about the that first foray of Door County into Saison? Because I feel like yeah. it was like Saison, wit beer, that kind of style. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So Door, like Southern Door County specifically has a very, I think it might still be today, one of the largest Belgian American settlements in the country. Um, something like 80% of that population in Southern Door County is Belgian American. Um, a lot of European influence here. You'll see like breakfast spots and other stuff, um, very European and Belgian inspired. So that kind of just fit making Belgian beers and farmhouse inspired beers. And that, that was also what Danny the founder of the company um, really liked to drink. He, he always would 
order Belgian beers. He uh, was a beer buyer at Wild Tomato Pizza Place up here for a while before starting the brewery. So he, he got influenced into those those styles a lot through that that route. But yeah, that's that's how it started for sure. It's definitely morphed since then. But yeah, we still we still do a lot of Belgian inspired and farmhouse inspired beers, more so on the Hacienda side now, and we kind of do that through oak aged mixed culture beer, which is more authentic to what mm. kind of Saison was or is in Belgium and was historically in Belgium. They're fermented with a mixed culture of yeast and bacteria, kind of whatever the house culture was for those farmhouse breweries. Yeah. So we try to mimic that, yeah. They're all really good. I think the first one, the very first Saison that I had from you guys, other than Big Sister, Little Sister, Bit Beers, but uh, I had the uh, Liver. That just blew my mind. Totally blew my mind. I didn't realize that beers could be like that. Hacienda, I've noticed, it like goes into some of the more quote-unquote like hype beer styles. Looking at the menu on tap here, there's some really super, super interesting barrel fermented uh, beers, interesting hopped beers. What exactly am I drinking right now? Yeah, that's a mosaic hop uh, weed lager. So and that's not typical. Yeah, which is a, really fun. Got a decent amount of malted weed to give it body, and then uh, yeah, it's solely hopped with mosaic, which you don't find a lot in lagers, but. It's nice to have that kind of clean profile yep. with a newer school hop like Mosaic. Right. Kind of bridges a gap between IPA and lager. The Mosaic is really like popping for me. Really dank, super flavorful. Have you found that people are like really responding to that? Like, is that what people are coming in for? I mean, I, th- I think the people are coming in for our IPAs mostly. Mm. Uh, right. But we like to drink a lot of more sessionable styles like lager uh, pale ale, the bouquage, mixed culture beers, the saisons, those types of beers. So like we do stuff like that to try to bridge those people to those styles. People are drinking them. Belgian styles, classic Belgian styles can't go wrong. Classic English styles can't go wrong. Yeah. But there was a while where it seemed like like consumers were getting super into craft beer. A lot of it was really really tasty, but it wasn't. It wasn't traditional, but now I, I kind of see like brewers kind of dialing it back towards more traditional stuff. Yeah. And I don't know if that's consumer pushed because I think a lot of consumers are still like under this like mindset that they want. It's not, I don't know if they want crazy, but they don't understand necessarily traditional, awesome styles. The beer industry, specifically the craft beer industry right now, consumers seem to just want new, new, new bold as possible flavors Mm. and honestly like high abv to me not great things Mm. just for like the longevity of people enjoying craft beer yeah um yeah there seems to be a little bit of that kind of sessionable balanced beer that's kind of gotten lost so cool ship i wanted to ask you about the cool ship yeah do you guys use it this time of year? It's a little bit odd because we're still cold. I know it's usually in fall sort of. Uh... Yeah, it's usually in the shoulder season. So it's fall and spring. We actually used it on Thursday. So yeah, we want the nighttime temperatures to get down into like the high 20s, low 30s. Um, so that kind of gives you a window of when we brew into it. And we're... Could, you, could you explain exactly what yeah. you're uh, trying to get out of that cool ship? Yeah, so we're we're trying to kind of mimic 
again, what the Belgian inspired process uh, that they use to make lambic and goose. But we're basically trying to encourage one, the wort to cool to a proper temperature overnight. So we, we pump um, wort after brew day into the cool ship um, without chilling it and open the windows to the building in that cool ship so that the wort will slowly cool overnight. But then we're also trying to encourage good bacteria and yeast to settle into that beer overnight. Um, and then we will allow that beer to just spontaneously ferment in oak barrels. So if the temperature gets too warm, you'll get some weird bacteria floating in the air, mm. or that's at least the thought. I know some people like Jester King in Austin, Texas, they do cool ship brewing in Austin, Texas, where it's a lot hotter. So they've converted their process a little bit to, to adapt to that. But, but yeah, yeah, we're trying to make kind of very long-term age oak fermented beer that's fermented with any natural microflora that's floating in the air up here. It's cool because it's like, it's very truly local. Yeah. Like you're, yeah. you're drinking like- You can't, you can't mimic that anywhere right. for sure. You can't make that beer anywhere else, even in probably the state if I had to guess, yeah. um, which is really neat. So you've got the cool ship, you've got some oak barrels, you have some fooders as well. Do you do anything yeah. different in the fooders? Yeah, so the fooders we typically use for a little shorter turnaround oak aged beer. So some saisons that only ferment in there for like a month to six months, maybe. Is that just because there's service area that got more punch for the oak? You just get kind of a mellower. There's not as much beard to wood contact. Yeah, I mean, you could you could age them in for a lot longer, mm -hmm. but but you're able to kind of treat those more like like regular ferment conical fermenters a little bit and mm. you can turn beer much faster the the barrel fermented beers we we typically like to age a little longer just to sour slightly more and um, just get more nuanced oak character out of them so before we go do you guys have any events that you've got coming up that you want people to know about we release new beer basically every saturday in both of our tap rooms um, so we have a tap room for Hacienda in Milwaukee, and then we have the, the tap room up here in Bailey's Harbor for both brands. Um, so we, we plan out Hacienda releases for every Saturday, and then we have live music up here every Saturday, which just started right now. But yeah, I don't, not, not anything specific other than our kind of a weekly thing. Cool. Yeah. Very nice. And also, by the way, it's very nice to visit this brewery. It's beautiful and the music is fantastic. So if you ever have an opportunity, definitely go. For Fermenting Wart, this is Colin. Thanks for listening. It's 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Material culture typically uses words to describe an existing object. 
But what happens when a poet uses them to create a single moment in your imagination? In this segment of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields shares an excerpt from her upcoming episode of her podcast, Refrangible, though tonight she'll keep her words to herself. The subject is home. The poem is entitled Insomnia in New York City. Not to worry, the microphone is in the very capable hands of Chicago poet Marvin Tate. Marvin Tate is a Chicago-based educator, poet, sculptor, and musician. His sculptural exhibit, entitled Birds of Paradise, is currently on display at the Five Points Art Gallery and Studios in Milwaukee. So here's the place where once was home. Uh, it's called Insomnia in New York City. I am happy. I am happy to have her home. Again, her eyes are filled with tired excitement. I do not ask of her how was her night or what stranger she has seen. She'll discuss this after the harsh outcry of our next door neighbor as he watches in anguish the TV shooting of his favorite hero. And so we sit. We sit listening to the white noise of the ceiling fan spinning endlessly into oblivion. The junkie mother pacing the dimly lit stairwell in search for her imaginary son. And Pete. Pete, the crazy ex-con turned artist from Rikers trying to convince the night clerk into allowing him, allowing him to paint murals in all of the ugly lilac colored rooms. In exchange, he should have this room for free. Slowly, she peels herself out of a blue sequin dress while lying on the bed, as if a mermaid washed ashore into the hands of the peasant fisherman. I prepared for her a tub of warm water in which she watches away the smoke and fingerprints of faceless Johns. She re-enters the tiny room. I tell her, I tell her how our neighbor screamed so loud, so loud that it stopped would-be thieves in their tracks after contemplating a robbery. She gives a reassuring smile and gently pulls the covers over her beautiful body while somewhere in the night the sax player Fills her dreams with noise. Lots and lots of noise. That's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Willow Ike. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Miss Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host.
Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't miss an episode of WORT's News. You can subscribe to the WORT Local News on your favorite podcast app. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. Thank you.